Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Today is June 16th, Bloomsday, the day in 1904 on which James Joyce's novel Ulysses takes place. But this year also marks the 100th anniversary of its publication. And to celebrate the occasion, the American Scholar asked five writers for their thoughts on Joyce's modern masterpiece. One of them, Flicka Small, wrote about the food in the novel, from the inner organs of beasts and fowls that Leopold Bloom eats with relish to the gorgonzola on his sandwich. Not to mention Molly Bloom's sensuous seed cake, Blazes Boylan's suggestive peaches, and everything that Stephen Dedalus can't afford to eat. Flicka Small came to her lectureship at University College Cork by way of her earlier career as a chef, giving her a singular perspective on the wild array of foods that appear on that famous day in Dublin, Ireland. Thanks so much for talking to me about food, Flicka. Thank you very much indeed. So I wanted to start this interview with some vulnerability. I confess I only read Ulysses for the first time last year. And I say that to encourage anybody who's listening who hasn't read it yet, that it is not too late. (laughs) And you can get over yourself. Because I just felt like before then, if I wasn't going to read it with like the annotated notes next to it, and if I don't get all the references, what's the point even? (laughs) But last year, I bit the bullet and I just listened to it on audio tape. And the advantage of having an audiobook narrator read it is that they don't stop. They just keep going. <laughs> so I had to keep going. And I and I loved it. Well, audio is a great way, especially with the Molly Bloom chapter at the end with the Penelope. Uh, it puts in the punctuation for you, which is which is great. Joyce, Joyce was a singer. You know, he was a really, really he won prizes for singing and could have been a very good a professional tenor singer. So he wrote for the voice. You can hear the music in it. People who are musicians will tell you how it's um, constructed, like a a musical composition would be constructed. But you know they say that it's the most talked about book and the least read. What's your elevator pitch for reading Ulysses? Why Joyce? Why now? Why 100 years after it first came out? Why now is because... Why not? I suppose. I mean, if it is the most talked about book or the least read, it would be great to know that people didn't just say, you know, but I hear it so often. Um, oh, yeah, I think we've got that book at home somewhere, but I've never read it. Yeah, it's the anniversary. It's a good time to read it if you've got it on the shelf at home. There are loads of reading groups now. So I agree with you. you don't always want to have to go and sort of do the whole academic spin on it. But it is a clever book and you can read it on whatever level you want. It's a bit like it's a bit like The Simpsons. Do you know, when my children started reading The Simpsons, they read it at a, at a childish level. But now they're in their thirties and they watch it and they go, "Wow! He never knew that was there, buried deep." <laughs> um, so yeah, I think you can read it on whatever level you want. I think get rid of all this myth and mystery about it. That it's a difficult book. It's not a difficult book to read. It's a lovely book and it's a funny book. Um, and it's about life and it's about humanity and it's about every day. And it's about things that we all do every day as well. 
So when did you first read it? You see, I kept on reading bits and bits. I, I, I wouldn't say that I've ever read it from start to finish in one go at all, at all. You know, um, but because I'm constantly looking up references and going from here to there and and looking to see where he has mentioned that food before. And of course, it's like a game. It's like a treasure hunt. You know, finding the different places and unearthing them and finding like kidneys in places you wouldn't expect them and and things like that. So I know my way inside out through most chapters now and I know them on my level in other words my subject matter so I could talk ad infinitum about Ulysses and the food in it and cross it backwards and forwards but you know other things you know there are people that have written about the music and I suppose and there are and the ecology and even there's even disability studies on Ulysses so like people have their own little areas of expertise it's funny that you mention puzzles, because one of the things that turned me off reading Ulysses for a while was Joyce's line, <clears throat> and I quote, I've put in so many enigmas and puzzles that it will keep the professors busy for centuries arguing over what I meant. And that's the only way of ensuring one's immortality. I hear that and I'm just like, maybe it's not that great, buddy. <laughs> but it really is. It really is. You have to hand it to him. The man had a talent to match his ego. <laughs> He's certainly a genius. I, I, um, I've been using that word a bit more recently because we all know, we forget, you know, now that style of writing, like the interior monologue is, is kind of taken for granted. But I think that he was so ahead of his time in the way that he did look into different minds, people's minds and different people's different minds. Um, and and, the, and building it on the story, building it on the Homeric story of, um, of Odysseus. Um, and all the other tropes and, and metaphors and allusions that he used. And even looking kind of into the future of today, I find there are so many things now that are, are completely relevant in Ulysses, and yet it's 100 years old. I know. Can you talk a little bit more about the context that Joyce was writing in? You know, what was the contemporary literature he was reading? Had anybody done anything similar by this time? What's the landscape? Well, one of the most important things to remember is that although it is set in 1904, it was actually published in 1922. So that's quite, you know, a, a wide spectrum. And a massive amount had happened, not only in the world, but in Ireland um, between, between 1904 and 1922. Well, A, we were no longer part of the British Empire. We were no longer a colony of Britain. We had our um, own our own government. We had independence. Um we were we were in the throes of civil war. Um, then there'd also been the First World War, there'd been the Boer War, there'd been revolutions all over the world, and there'd been the the Spanish flu, which had also killed as almost as many people as as the First World War as well. So all these things had taken place, and Joyce is watching that while he's writing his book and setting it in 1904. So he's very accurate about the time, but he's looking at it through this prism of things that have happened in the world. And a lot of them have been revolutionary things that have happened and advances in people's thinking. I mean, he makes references to um, sort of dream interpretation, for instance. And yet Freud was only really just sort of setting out on on, um, on his um, psychoanalytic sort of endeavours. Um the other thing, when you say about the, his reading, he read really, really widely. And he was obviously very gifted and he was a genius. He won competitions at school for his writing. 
He was then way ahead of his time at university in Dublin. He studied modern languages, which was unusual. And he was reading different material and following a different path to, say, Yeats and Lady Gregory and J.M. Singh and all the Celtic revival um, poets and artists who were really looking at the west coast of Ireland and to their roots and their language and the oral tradition. And Joyce was looking towards Europe. Ibsen was his favourite author. Uh, he translated some of his works and he really had a love for Europe and he wanted to get away from Ireland. He found Ireland very paralysing and um, very containing. He was enmeshed. He said he was enmeshed in the nets and he wanted to free himself and he wanted to go to Europe. And he would be a, he'd be a great European now. He would not have voted for Brexit, that's for sure. <laughs> I want to zero in a little bit more on like why 1904. There was a lot happening in Europe, in Ireland between 1904 and 1922. Was there a particular reason that Joyce has talked about or that we know about that he said it in 1904 and in Dublin, you know, which he had already left? If he wanted to get the heck out of Ireland, why set your novel in Ireland, you know? Good question. And of course, the um, really important thing there is why is it set on June the 16th, 1904? That is the day that he and Nora Barnacle from Galway, who was working as a chambermaid in Dublin, um, they they went walking out together, their first date. He had spotted her in the street. He asked her out for a date. She didn't turn up the first time. She wasn't sure, you know, she didn't like being picked up in the street, really. So he wrote to her and asked her out again, and she agreed to go with him and apparently made a man of him that night, too, in um, on June the 16th. So that's the date. That's why the date is so important. 1904 was important for him as well. Um, he had already tried to escape when he left, um, when he got his degree from the, the university in Dublin. Um, he wanted to leave because of what I'd said previously about how, how, how constricting he found it living in, in Ireland. Um, he went to Paris and he was going to take a medical degree, but his French wasn't up to um, all the terminology that he would have needed to study medicine. And also he didn't have enough money to pay the fees. So he hung out. Um, there were plenty of artists and writers, and it was. And he spent a lot of time in libraries and reading uh, in Paris until he got a telegram from his father telling him that he should come home, that his mother was dying, and he came home. And of course, this is where Ulysses opens, really and truly, with his friend berating him for not agreeing to what his mother wanted him to promise to do when she, on her deathbed she wanted him to come back into the church and to um, be a better Catholic and he wouldn't he wouldn't promise her that he wouldn't agree to it and it haunted him all his life and the really ironic thing is that he although he was what we would call a non-believer he actually really took it on board he had been brought up um, by the Jesuits and he knew religion he knew Catholic religion inside out and he quite liked the spectacle of the of, of sort of high church in in Trieste he would go to the Greek Orthodox Church just you know to inhale the incense and things but so it really never left him and I'm sure his mother would have been proud of of that you know I did not know that June 16th was the day that Joyce became a man. That is great. And, you know, I think it speaks 
to the candor of the book, the way sexuality, sensuality is treated just so frankly, which for some reason we don't expect in a novel from 100 years ago. It's not lewd for lewd's sake, but there is just a lot of earthiness, a lot of carnality. And that's besides descriptions of sex, you know, that's nowhere more apparent than in descriptions of food, your specialty. So tell me, what first drew you in to the food of Ulysses? Well, the fact that it wasn't in Ireland when I was younger. When I was chefing in the 1970s, and I was trying to access things like olives and cucumbers and and locally produced cheeses or raw milk cheeses or even Irish made cheeses. You couldn't get them, you know, you couldn't get the um, ingredients for a Mediterranean diet, say. Um, nobody was eating pasta dishes, um, salad. Salad was usually, you know, a quarter tomato and a piece of lettuce. And olive oil, you bought in the chemist to put in your ears. It was um, a remedy for earache, you know, and you bought it, and bought it in drops. You could, it, it, there was um, a sort of noxious thing called salad cream that was like a dressing that you put on, on salad. Um, yeah, you know, there were very few vegetables. Um, there, was, there's not, there was certainly not a variety of vegetables or a variety of fruits being, well, obviously not being grown in Ireland, but not imported into Ireland either. And I found that really strange. I thought, well, Joyce writes so accurately. He was really into collecting um, ephemera in order to make sure that what, you know, the newspaper cuttings and the, the street plans and who lived where and directories of people's names and things. Why hadn't he been accurate about the food? So then I started looking into it much more closely and realizing, of course, the food was available in 1904. It was just after 1922 that it wasn't available. In fact, it was probably later than that. It was probably more like 1930. And, and Ireland, with good intentions, wanted to be more self-sufficient. And so we started putting an embargo on foods coming from other countries and particularly from Britain. And so suddenly there was a, you know, that cut off access to a choice of vegetables and other ingredients. And it really wasn't until I would say the early 1980s that there were um, Irish cheeses, just the beginning of Irish cheese being made. So, yeah, so then I had to start doing some really serious work then, because by that time um, I ha was writing my master's and I wanted to write my master's on the food in Ulysses and needed to do some digging. And I found price lists for 1904 um, from there were big department stores setting up in Dublin around about the late 1800s. Um, the more wealthy people and sort of um, people who worked in sort of municipal jobs were moving into the suburbs of Dublin and they wanted their um, food delivered to them. They wanted to be able to go to big department stores in the city and then they wanted to buy foods and have their groceries delivered the, to them out in the suburbs mainly on the south side of Dublin. And um, a big shop called Finlaters, um, they brought out a magazine. It was, it was brilliant, actually. They brought out a magazine for women and they would have articles in it saying to women things about sort of cosmetics and clothes and perhaps learning to type and various other features. But in the back, they would have a price list of all the foods that they sold and that could be delivered to your house. So that was, you know, that was a really good selling machine for them. For me, it was a godsend because I was able to look up. Yes, Gorgonzola was available. Yes, green and black 
um, olives were available. Yes, you could buy plum trees, potted milk in potted meat, sorry, in little jars and big jars. Um, and the prices of everything, um, yeah, all that food was available. So that was that was great. That was what I did my masters on. But then I wanted to take it further because obviously food stops being food at some sort of level in Ulysses and becomes other things or it tells us something about the people that are eating it or it tells us something about the situation and it also tells us a lot about what people are not eating it tells us about poverty it tells us about malnutrition it hints at the aftermath of the famine it hints at the bad living conditions of people who had to move to urban areas after the famine i mean let's dig into it what exactly does food become in the book? To stick with the Catholic theme, what's being transubstantiated from bread into body? You could have me talking for 18 weeks on this. <laughs> well, I, I think in the Calypso, for instance, Calypso, which is where we first meet Leopold Bloom, you know, the first three episodes of Ulysses are very much about Stephen Dedalus, who is really the alter ego of a young James Joyce. And then um, I would say that Leopold Bloom is like a more mature James Joyce. Um, we meet him. He's making breakfast for his wife. Now, firstly, that would have been quite, quite surprising to an audience reading the book then. Um, a man in the kitchen, um, footering around, you know, looking them, putting milk down for the cat and making cups of tea and carrying a tray of buttered bread and up to his wife in bed. And the way that he is sort of so accommodating to her, and he picking up her hairpins off the floor and chatting to her about what books she wants to get from the library. And so there's that, you know, he he's he's very at home in his kitchen. And we meet him later on in the in the in the book as well, where he brings the young Stephen Dedalus back home to his kitchen um, when they're both drunk. Um, this is much later on in the book. But he is cooking a kidney. And this says the, the kidney motif runs a lot through Ulysses. It's one of the, one of the foods that does run through because for a start off, it's not his intention to actually have a kidney for breakfast. He thinks about having eggs for breakfast, but the hens are off lay because it's summer and there's been a drought. And so he thinks, oh, you know, I really like mutton kidneys. So he sets off to the butcher's shop to go and buy a mutton kidney and they've run out of mutton kidneys because it's a Thursday and there's no meat, there's no killing on a Thursday because in Catholic Ireland, you don't eat meat on a Friday. So he lands up having to buy a pork kidney. This instantly throws us out because we know that he has a Jewish background, that his father was, was Jewish. And although Leopold Bloom was born and read in Ireland and he is not an Orthodox Jew, um, this definitely says something about how he is not following the sort of food rules. It's a trope for looking out from the outside in, that Leopold Bloom is always on the outside. He's always considered to be a bit of an outsider and he's always wondering why people do things. And this slightly different background or ethnic background gives the opportunity for Joyce to do that, to, to, to watch us watching Bloom looking in. So he, he, buys, he buys the kidney. The kidney shop is very interesting. Um, I'm not going to talk a lot about the guy who runs the shop, but just the way in which the food is displayed on plates, willow patterned plates in the window. And 
to me, this is very much, you know, Bloom tends to see body parts, human body parts related to food parts as well. And food and the human body are so closely interrelated. I mean, obviously they are, you know, we wouldn't be alive if we didn't eat. Um, but he, when he walks home, he follows the woman that he's been watching. And he said he liked, he wanted to walk slowly behind her so he could watch her moving hams. You know, he wants to see her thighs swaying backwards and forwards. And it's like the, the meat on the plates have been bodies on view as well. It's like the male gaze of a woman. I think that is coming through that butcher's, that butchering chapter as well. And he gets home and he cooks the kidney and eats it. But later on, much later on, um, in Circe, which is the chapter which is sort of very hallucinatory, and Bloom is again talking about his dream of a future, a dream that of a future that would be so much more egalitarian and embrace all races. And he said, in my um, my world, in my Hibernia, um, it will be shaped like a. Um, it, it will. I will build a giant Bloomusalem, and it will be in the shape of a giant kidney. And he has this wonderful edifice that's sort of made of glass, but it's going to be in the shape of a giant kidney. And I love the fact that the kidney, this modest little kidney, you know, that started off in a frying pan, nearly getting burnt, has suddenly become his vision for the future. You know, reading through Ulysses, through the lens of food, picking through it, trying to find all the olives, what surprised you the most about the food in Ulysses? What connection, maybe what metaphor, what shocked you? Um, what shocked me, I think, is the poverty and how it's related to food by what people do not have to eat. Like, for instance, he sees a man standing almost sort of who's passing out almost from hunger and the man is inhaling the fumes from a baker's that the, the, I think there's this the steam of 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 um, jam puffs I think is coming up through the grating and the pavement and this man is just inhaling it it because he is so hungry and the same with the sisters um the um, Stephen Dedalus, who's the young James Joyce character, um, his sisters Dilly Dedalus and the other, the younger ones, um, the way she tries to get a couple of bob off her father to go and buy them food, and he's uh, he's very loath to give them the money because he's going to go drinking. Um, she's cooking up a, a sort of kettle full of peas. Um, they don't have milk to put in their tea. They, they use the liquid that the porridge oats have been steeped in. And then later on, there's um, Joyce is in a hotel called the Ormond Hotel, and he's eating his dinner. And he has this image, and we're not quite sure whether it's real or not, but he says that he can see the green faces of, of children looking in through the windows at him. And of course, this is harping back to the famine, where it was um, reported that people were so poor that they um, and so starving that they had to eat um, grass and dock leaves in the fields, and that when their corpses were found, their corpses had turned green. And, and so I found that quite shocking. And we haven't really touched on on Molly Bloom, who also loves her food, but um, her chapter is as fresh. She was saying it's as fresh as it's been written yesterday, I think, um, and as outrageous and as outspoken. 
And one of the lovely motifs that I that I always feel about Bloom, because I have I'm very fond of Leopold Bloom, um, when he is in the Ormond Hotel, he's eating with lots of other people, um, different colleagues. He's joined some people at a table. Um, he's eating liver and bacon. Um, he he feels lonely. He feels terribly alone. You know the way you feel alone in company sometimes, more alone than ever. And there's somebody singing up at the counter and he's thinking about his wife who's having an affair and she's probably in bed with him now. And um, he's he looks at the counter and there's one sandwich left under the glass dome. And it's a sardine, a sardine on a piece of bread. And he feels like that lonely sardine he says you know he's the last sardine left standing alone and it's I love it you know I feel so sorry for him (laughs) I love it too and I hope you found this introduction to Ulysses from Flick a Small as pleasurable as I have because I think food is just such a welcoming lens through which to look at the novel because it can be so intimidating so my advice forget the Greek Forget Joyce's own chart for the book, which, I don't know, I don't find that helpful. (laughs) Personally, that's like, this is the organ and the color that corresponds to the chapter and the great, whatever. I'd rather just read it. And I feel like reading through it and spending time considering what the simplest, most immediate concerns of the day are, what you're going to eat, just humanizes every character in it. And it humanizes Joyce who could be a prickly kind of guy. And I think it humanizes this 700-page novel that you don't need a degree to understand, no matter what anybody tells you about footnotes. And because Joyce said it, and because people still think he's smart, I'll say it. That old saw is true. You are what you eat. So eat some Ulysses this Bloomsday. And if you're not quite done... We have links in the show notes to Flicka Small's contribution to our Joyce Centennial, Know Me, Come Eat With Me, as well as the other four essays. And Bloomsday 2022 is on in Ireland and around the world, so celebrate in any way you feel, including, you know, by whipping up some recipes that appear in the book. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Mm-hmm.